Why is it important to press into the mystery of the Trinity? Why, what, why must we consider this mystery? Well, the Bible invites us to seek the knowledge of God. In several places it says, seek the knowledge and grow in the knowledge of God. And this knowledge is an experiential knowledge that we would experience God, but it is also a knowledge of our minds, that with our minds we would seek to love God. And both reinforce each other, the knowledge of our minds and the knowledge of our experience. And God is saying, I want you to know me. Yes, it is true that God is mysterious, as we just sang in that song. He is a mystery. But the Christian definition of mystery is not to be just completely baffled, scratching our heads. The Christian definition of mystery is to receive from God what He has given us because He has made Himself known. And He wants to make Himself known to us that we may know Him. But what we understand is that what we know of God doesn't completely capture and, and encapsulate who God is. He's too big for that. So Christian mystery is to hold on to and to receive what we can, to speak to what we can speak to, but then when we come to the limit of what we can say, we stop and we wonder and we worship. That's Christian mystery. And the Bible invites us to grow in the knowledge of God. We also want to contemplate the mystery of the Trinity because, well, we, as Christians, we teach that you become what you worship, which is why you don't want to worship idols. We become what we worship, and the, those of us who have chosen to build our lives upon the life of God, then the more we press into and understand, well, well what is this life of God that we've built our lives upon, we get a sense of who, who we are, and what is the life that we're called to and called into? So far from being just like up in the sky, heady theological babble, this doesn't get more practical than that. This is about us and who we are by exploring who is God. So pressing into the mystery of the Trinity, we find that the life of God is relationship and it is unity. And the center which holds these together is love. A love that is fully giving and fully receiving. That is the life of God that we're called to, to imitate. It's also the life of God that we're called to participate and to share into. That we are born of the flesh, but God now gives us this opportunity, as we heard in the Gospel reading, to be now born of God, to share in His life, so that our life also might be relationship and unity, hold together in the center by a love that is fully giving as well as fully receiving. I, I want that, do you? So let's go to the biblical background for the Trinity, uh, because sometimes people wonder, well, the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. It's like, does the Bible talk about the Trinity? Well, yes and no. Like, it's true that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and there's no one passage that you can point to to say, read that and you'll know everything you need to know about the Trinity. Although, if you do want to know where to read, first place I would go is John 13, through 17. Those five chapters, John 13 through 17, uh, does give us some of the, the greatest insight and picture into who God is as Trinity. So those are five chapters. You've got five days this week. Read a chapter a week. And by the end, you've pressed into the mystery of the Trinity. Okay, but it's true that the Bible doesn't like in one place say, here's the doctrine of the Trinity as we as Christians have come to understand it and proclaim it. So then how did we get there? Uh, well, if you go to the Old Testament, one of the main themes of the Old Testament is that God is one. The most important command, listen up Israel, the Lord your God, He alone is the Lord, the Lord is one. 
And then following right after it, you shall not worship anything and no one else above or besides or in, in any relation to the one God who alone is God. Now, in the ancient world, this was a revolutionary concept. Everybody else in the, in the ancient world had their own deities and they believed there was like this pantheon and it's my God versus your God, may the strongest God win kind of thing. And for the Israelites to receive this teaching from God, this revelation that God is one, totally revolutionary, which is maybe part of the reason why they didn't quite get it at first. In fact, it pretty much takes the whole history of the Old Testament for the Israelites to realize, okay, God is one. We need to stop worshiping these other idols and these other false gods. So it makes sense then that the Old Testament is not going to be explicit about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not going to be right out there and obvious. Although, as Christians, looking back with the eyes of the Spirit, we see some hints along the way. One that Christians have loved to point out from the beginning is, well, the beginning. You go to the first three verses of the entire scriptures. Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and here you have God in the act of creation. Before anything is made, there's God and His Spirit hovering over the formless void. And how does God create? He says, let there be. He speaks. John later tells us that Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, is also called the Word of God. And it's by the Word of God that all things came into existence. So then we look at that back in, in Genesis 1, and we see that, yeah, right there. We've got God, we have the Spirit, and then the Word of God bringing into creation all things. So the hints are there with eyes to see, but overall, the message of the Old Testament is God is one. You shall not worship any other being, any other thing at all. So then when Israel finally gets it, they're locked in, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I've come not to abolish and do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And the most important part of the law, that God is one and you worship nobody but him. Jesus is not going to replace that. He's actually coming to bring that to fulfillment. Strange then that the New Testament also records Jesus himself receiving worship. In fact, Matthew's Gospel, there are a few places, but in Matthew's Gospel, which is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, it's written to a Jewish audience to cater to the Jews especially, and this Gospel, more than the other three, cites Jesus being worshipped three times. When he walks on the water and he gets in the boat, the disciples worship him. When he's raised from the dead, the women who meet him at the tomb cling to his feet and they worship him. And then on the mount where he gives the Great Commission, shortly before he ascends into heaven, his disciples worship him. And he does not refuse their worship. And that's important. And you think, well, that's only a handful of times. Yeah, but even one time of being worshipped when you're not supposed to be, not so good. Let's take a look at uh, this guy, Herod, in Acts 12. He's a king, and he gives some great speech, and everybody's like, ah, oh, he's God. He's like a god. He's not even a man. And Herod's like, oh, 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 taking it in. Not saying, actually, I put my pants on one leg at a time, like the rest of y'all. And because he does not say, wait, I'm not a god, he's struck down, immediately dead, and the worms come and they eat his flesh. And you're like, why did you add that last detail? Did you really need to say that? Was that necessary? Yeah, well, but keep in mind, we've got Miles Carlson here in, in the congregation listening, and now he's paying attention. He's like, whoa, cool. 
and other, all the other uh, junior and senior high boys. And yeah, there's some weird stuff in the Bible. You should check it out. Um, but Jesus receives worship and he does not refuse. The implications of that are massive. They're just massive. And you might say, well, what about the Spirit? It's true that the Spirit, because the role of the Spirit is to lead us to Jesus, so He kind of has this transparency. We look through the Spirit to see Jesus, and then in seeing Jesus, we understand the Father. That's how what's called the economy of the Trinity works. So the Spirit has somewhat of a servant role, although, of course, in the kingdom of God, servant does not mean less than. Servant actually means really high honor. But the point is, it makes sense that the Spirit's not going to be like front and center through the Scriptures. Nonetheless, if we have eyes to see, we'll see that the Spirit is everywhere in the Bible. If we start looking for it, He's everywhere. Uh, Just for one example, take Jesus' own ministry. How is Jesus conceived in the Virgin Mary? By the Holy Spirit. God conceiving God in the the Mother of God, in Mary. Um, after that, at his baptism, it's the Holy Spirit who comes down and anoints him for the ministry. And everything he does, all of his miracles, all his teaching he does in the power of the Spirit. Luke is really clear. The Spirit leads him into the desert for temptation. The Spirit leads him out to begin his ministry. And Jesus in the synagogue says, the Spirit is upon me to anoint me for these works. So it's in the power of the Spirit that Jesus does everything he's doing. Plus, the New Testament in several places, both Jesus and Paul, speak of the Spirit as giving life. And that's something that only God can do. Only God gives life. And actually, remember back to the dry bones. The dry bones that are lifeless until the breath or the wind or the Spirit of God breathes upon them and gives them life. So the Spirit gives life. It's clear. Even though there's no like, here's the Trinity, click, click, click. It's clear that in reading the New Testament, we see Jesus is worshipped. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet, we're not going to throw out the Old Testament. We're not going to throw out that fundamental teaching that God is one. So what do we do with that? How do we make of that? It's also clear, by the way, from the earliest Christian manuscripts outside of the New Testament, that the Christians were worshiping Jesus right away, from very early on. So what do we make of all this? Well, it reveals that while God is yet one, within God... There is relationship. Within God, there is a distinction between the persons, between the Father and between the Son and between the Holy Spirit. And this distinction allows both that they will have different roles, right? We don't say the Father was crucified and Jesus did not come down at Pentecost. They have different roles and different functions, and yet in every activity, in every action, they are one, they are unified. But this distinction says there is relationship in God because you can't have relationship with yourself. You have to have another. So each member of the Trinity is distinct and we're not supposed to mix or confuse them. Um, An example might be like, well, as Christians, we're, we're called to unity. In fact, a very profound unity. The Bible says the same unity that the Trinity has within himself, we're to have with one another. Uh, but Tom here, uh, he is like me, um, a Christian, and we have unity together, and we're called to unity, but we remain distinct. And by coming into unity with one another, Tom and I don't lose our sense of identity. He never stops being Tom, I never stop being Brett. We still retain our self, our identity. Perhaps what we lose is our selfishness, but we do not lose our self. 
And that's the way to think about the different persons of the Trinity. They don't lose themselves or their distinct identity by being one. So they're distinct. There's relationship. And that's how we understand God is three. Yet, being distinct is not separate. Distinct is not distance. There is no distance in God. Love hates distance. Love loves closeness. And what we see is that uh, God is a relationship of, of unity. He's one being. There's no distance or separation among the three. And that's why in the creed we say that the Son is of one being with the Father. So the Son and the Holy Spirit share with the Father the single nature of God. Yes, there are three persons, but only one nature. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all eternal. They're equal in glory. And again, completely unified in their action. So you might compare or contrast that to like the, the gods of Greco-Roman mythology. We had like Zeus and Hera and Athena. They're always bickering with each other and never unified in their action. You see, that's different. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always unified in their action. Their will, the same. And you might say, well, what about the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Because Jesus, wrestling in the garden, wrestling to obey the Father's will, what does he do in the end? In the end, he says, yes, my will is conformed to yours. So it actually proves the point even more. And it also lets us know that to struggle with obeying God's will is not necessarily a bad thing or, or a sin. It all has to do with what's the choice you make at the end. But that's a sermon for another day. Okay, so we see that God is together in his nature. He is one in nature. Though he's three persons, he's one in essence or in nature. But it's more than that. Because again, going back to Tom. See, Tom and I are both humans. So we share human nature. Yet, we are two different beings. We're not the same being. Last time I checked, right, Tom? You and I? <laughs> so... We are not the same being. We're two beings, even though we share human nature. This is where God is different. This is where we enter into the mystery where it's like, we, we can't fully explain this. Is that God is three persons, not only in one nature, but he's also one being. There's only one being that is God. This is why we can say, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but there are not three gods. There is only one being that we call God, that we worship. Which is why, even though many religions don't understand and they accuse us of being polytheists, we say, no, we're not. This is how. And yes, it is a mystery. We can understand it partly. We can't understand it fully. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but there are not three gods. This says to us that there is a unity in God of such a profound measure that we, we cannot grasp it. It's, it's beyond our understanding. So not only is God relationship, but God is also unity. And the center that holds these two together is a love that is fully giving and fully receiving. And, and one analogy, uh, one image that especially the Eastern Orthodox love to use, um, and I was reminded of it as we were reading the Exodus 3 passage of the burning bush, is this idea that God is three torches but one flame. So if in your imaginations you picture three flames and the, and the life and the activity of flame and fire dancing with one another and interpenetrating one another 
in and out and in and out continuously, fully giving and fully receiving. That's the life of the Trinity. That's God. Okay. All right. Everybody take a deep breath. It was awesome. Uh, pat yourself on the back for hanging in there. Um, elbow your neighbor if they're starting to fall asleep. Um, but, but actually, if you're tracking, which I, th- I think I see some of you are, you're starting to realize, wow, I'm being drawn into the most profound mystery of the universe. And it's true. And it's only getting better, um, more interesting. So we've seen now that the life of God is relationship and it is unity. And the scripture tells us that love is the center and the foundation for this relationship and this unity. In John 17, I mentioned John 13 through 17 earlier. John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father on the night before he goes to the cross. And he says, Father, I desire that my disciples also whom you've given to me, that they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. And now listen to this. Because you loved me, before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying and he's remembering. And and earlier in that same prayer he said, now glorify me with the glory that I had with you from the beginning. Jesus did not come into time and into being when he was conceived in the Virgin Mary. He was eternally the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he's eternally receiving and giving back the love of the Father together with the Spirit. So the Father has forever loved the Son and looked upon the Son with nothing but love. Love that is fully giving and fully receiving. You know, it occurred to me as I was doing the prep for this sermon that when God tells us to love God and to love our neighbors, I realized, well, God's been doing this forever. Because for the Father to love His neighbor is to love the Son and the Spirit. Like, that, those are His neighbors. And for the Spirit to love his neighbors is to love the Father and the Son. So to love their neighbor is to love God, and to love God is to love their neighbor. No wonder all the law and the prophets hang upon these two commandments, because it's been going on forever. Love. That is who God is. Truly, John said in his epistle, God is love. And we understand that this love is not a static thing, it's a dynamic thing, like the flames interpenetrating and weaving with one another. It's love that is fully giving and fully receiving. And it's relationship and it's unity. Love holding them together. Now, what's really, it just gets better and better. Because not only is this how God exists within himself, we might be thinking, okay, fine, what does that have to do with you and me? This is how God relates to the world as well with his desire for relationship and his desire for unity, to bring all things into unity to himself. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus is, or Paul is talking about Jesus coming back at the end of the world, he says he will destroy every enemy and bring the kingdom to his Father and lay down the authority to the Father so that God may be all in all, drawing all things to a unity in himself. This is how God looks upon the world. Which means, from our end, If God is fully giving and fully receiving, then we who stand on the other end of that relationship are then fully receiving and then fully giving back to God. So I mentioned a minute ago that the Father has loved the Son from before the creation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. And just a few chapters before that, in John 15, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room and he says... 
as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. No qualifications. No, well, sort of. But completely, as the Father loves me, from eternity, as the Father looks upon the Son with complete love from all eternity, you have been in the mind of God for all eternity. This is why I said at the beginning, this sermon is for you. If you've wondered, has God forgot me? Has God the Father forgotten the Son? If that is possible, maybe God has forgotten you. But God loves you with the same love with which He has loved Himself for all eternity. The Father loving the Son, that is the love with which Jesus loves you. Jesus being God says, I love you that same way. Receive and remain in my love. Almost as great as a mystery that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is, right behind it is the doctrine that we are to be joined to the life of God. The God who is high and lofty, who inhabits all of eternity, who is holy, who has no need of you or me whatsoever. He does not need us, and yet, scriptures tell us, He delights to dwell with us, with the humble and the lowly in heart, and He even desires to be within us, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That if you believe in Jesus and you're baptized, God is within you. What a profound mystery. It means that you don't know how much God loves you. You can't. It's incomprehensible. If you could comprehend the mystery of the Trinity, then you could begin to understand how much God loves you. God loves you more than you know. Quick story. Uh, I didn't tell it at the first service, but a couple years ago when I was a youth pastor, it was earlier on in in the youth pastor role, and I was on vacation at the beginning of the summer and I was just walking down a hill on a hike and trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's our curriculum for the summer? What are we going to do? And uh, so I was like, well, I guess I should ask God. So I was like, God, what, what, what should I tell them? I was thinking about maybe like doing a, studying the book of Acts. And God was like, okay, do, do this Acts study, but tell them that I love them. Just tell them how much I love them. And I really felt like that's true not just for the youth group for that summer. I feel like that's always true. Like, I think God just wants you to know how much... He loves you. And I don't think we can say it enough. He loves you. Romans 8 that we read this morning talks about the spirit that adopts us in. Takes us who are on the outside. We who are not in the family of God. He says, I'm taking you in. You are now the family of God. You are my children. I've adopted you. My own children. My own life now you share with me. And it's all the more amazing given the fact that every one of us By our own decision, by our own sin and rebellion, we've turned away from God. Yet the witness of Scripture is that He keeps coming back to you and me and extending the invitation to be with Him, saying, come to me, come back to your first love. I am all that you need. I have all that you need. I forgive. I cleanse. I am merciful. And I want to unite you to myself. His mercy is overwhelming and His desire for us is unending. His love does not fail. His love does not run out. His love does not run dry. As I said earlier, love hates distance. There's no distance in God. Love does, want, does not want any distance between Him and you. And when we had created the gap, when we had made a distance between us and God that we could not close, if we had tried, we could not have closed that gap. He says, 
this is not good enough for me. I'm going to fix this. And he comes. And the beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ, he gives it all. Talk about a love that is fully giving. He lays it all out, gives his very own life to close that gap and close that distance to bring you and me back to God. So now when we say that God's love is fully giving and that we are fully receiving that love, that is infinitely true, isn't it? And truly does John speak in the opening chapter of his gospel when he says about Jesus Christ, and out of his fullness, from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. Out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Grace that we did not deserve, and yet grace that is willingly, lovingly offered time and time again. But now then, having received God and his love, God desires that we give back to him. If it's fully giving and fully receiving. Otherwise, if we didn't give back to God, then he wouldn't be in a fully giving and fully receiving. And that's what he wants. Even though you might think, well, how is that possible? How could I possibly give back to God anything of worth or value? What could he gain from me? What does he want? The answer what anyone in a loving and close relationship wants. You, just you, as you are this morning, nothing more, but nothing less. He wants all of you. He gave all of himself so that he could have all of you. Never forget that that is the greatest gift that we could receive from God is his very own life. But never forget, that's what he wants from us as well. Our very own life given back to him. And yeah, you might think, Compared to what he gave on the cross, what's the little that I can offer? So I like thought about helping somebody move yesterday and didn't even end up doing that. Like, what are my good deeds compared to the cross? And Jesus says, yeah, I I know it's nothing. It's like pennies compared to what I've given. But remember the widow and her pennies. She gave her pennies and Jesus said she gave more than anybody else. Because he wasn't focused on the pennies part. He was focused on the all she had heart. And in that sense, she did give more than anybody else. She gave 100%, all that she had. She held nothing back from him. And that's what he wants from you. So what does that mean to like give everything back to God? If, if we are in this relationship where we're fully receiving, what does it mean to then fully give back to God, to give him our love and affection? Well, it means giving him our thanks, first and foremost. Uh, but Paul says it the best in, in Colossians. Whatever you do, in word or deed, big or small, everything in your life, do it all for the love of God. He says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks is so important. Nothing delights the heart of God more than to give him thanks. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, small or big, day in, day out, breath in, breath out, do it all for the love of God. That's how you can give it all back to God. What's really exciting about that is he's not like needing you to go do some great, grand, awesome thing. He's needing you to just be who you are in the life that he's asked you to lead and simply in every moment give to him all that you are and be ready for him to ask for more. The other really important way, along with just simply the attitude of I I give you all that I am, the other really important way that the scriptures teach that we give back to God, that we can love God, is actually to love one another. Nothing delights the heart of God more than 
being thankful, like I already said, but then also loving his other children. That's what he wants. And again, Paul says it best, so why try to say better what Paul says best? Again, to Colossians. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You who have received the love of God, then put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, forgive each other. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to, indeed, to which indeed you were called in one body. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.